and welcome to Say Hi to the Future, a podcast aimed at highlighting the human side of ingenuity, clever, inventive, and original thinking. My name is Ken Tenser, CEO of SpiderWorks, a leading business consultancy for mid-market organizations and entrepreneurs globally. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. With me today is Jim Blassingame, founder and president of Small Business Network, and Louise Sullivan, founder and CEO of People and Culture Matters. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the show. Jim Blassigame, Louise Sullivan, welcome to say hi to the future. Hi, Louise. Hi, Ken. And Jim, I should say welcome back. So it's great to be to be back. And we've shared many times on your your show. I think you told me once it was 83. So yeah. we're on two here. I got a little ways to go. So we'll keep at it. Louise, culture. When I was growing up, when I was getting out of my my first bout of business school, culture was still something that the yogurt makers were marketing as a benefit to the people who ate it. No longer. What, what, what is culture? How did it make its way from food to, to our everyday lives as corporate leaders? Thanks, Ken. You're exactly right. Culture is where it's at. Uh, culture is such a huge element and I would say needs to be at the center of corporate strategy. Uh, culture is something that has always existed. It exists even when you don't pay attention to it. But what the big difference is, is many organizations are turning to really how, figuring out how to manage, how to pay attention to and cultivate their culture in a way that creates whatever values and or high performance culture, uh, abilities and skills that they're trying to drive throughout the organization. When you hear that, Jim, I mean, you've dealt with entrepreneurs for decades. I've been an entrepreneur forever. In the words of my late father, and he was a brilliant, longtime successful entrepreneur. When I studied, started studying, working on culture and entrepreneurship and being inclusive, he said to me, what are you doing? It's your company. Why do you keep asking people? So, Jim, is this a message that that entrepreneur, entrepreneurs can actually rally around? The way I like to think of this, and and you know, I I didn't I didn't uh, inherit my white hair. I earned all of it over the years, <laughs> and and I, I really I commend Louise for her excellent uh, analysis. That was that was very good, Louise, but. I go back a long way, and and as you know, Ken, I wrote a book about about how analog ethics is is becoming digital ethics. Well, when we didn't have anything digital, we didn't have analog ethics, Louise. We just had ethics, and it was all it was such a it was such a a a, a subliminal part of our lives. We didn't really think about it. We just did it, and I call that an example of what I call the school it's not old school it's not new school it's the school it's fundamental well as we as we've achieved digital leverage we have to start thinking about digital ethics another another victim of of digital leverage is culture right it's i see those two things very similarly and so the 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 bad news is we had a pandemic the good news is we had the technology that allowed us not to be out of business. Many of us, most of us, we were able to leverage this technology to the point where, as you as you have heard me say before, I think both of you, 
when I interviewed CEOs all over the world in June of 2020, how are you guys doing with everybody going home? And they said, I cannot believe how well we're doing. But they were talking about productivity. It was too soon to know about the culture. Now, here it is almost three years later. We now know about the culture. To, to both of you, to either of you, what do we know about the culture? I mean, Louise, it's hard enough to, to in, a, in a larger organization, in a multinational culture, no matter what the values are at the top, they're interpreted differently. Um, by de- Depending on the country, depending on the culture of the society in which they live. And now, now we're all sitting at home. Now we're not even necessarily tied to our... Our, our organization, our colleagues, our, our, our country culture, how do we deal with it? What I find so interesting about the focus on culture, the shift that has happened in the last three years, is really about this sense of belonging. I think all employees want a sense of belonging to their organization. And to me, that's the root of the culture. They're be- wanting to belong to something bigger than themselves. They're wanting to belong to something that matters, and they're wanting to belong to something that provides purpose. And as the younger generations are coming up through the ranks of the business, they're ret- they're leaning in on culture to provide that sense of purpose for them. So many times as I'm interacting and hiring top candidates within the younger generations, they're asking, what is the culture? What is what what is in it for me? How 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 do I grow? And how do I get mentored to make it meaningful and impactful for me? So I, my belief is that culture is a sense of belonging that it provides to employees. And it must be of utmost focus for the organization to make sure that you are cultivating an organization that suits all generations, but provides the stickiness and belonging that um, employees are requiring. Another good job, Louise. The the thing that um, we have to remember, though, and this is this is my old school. This is my the school position on this. Culture is essential. It's not optional. Well, let me let me rephrase that. All organizations have a culture. It could be a bad culture, right? We've seen that. We've all seen that. But having a good culture in order to be successful is essential, and and. And I believe that it's very difficult, if not impossible, to have culture without being close to each other, without having a hive. I call it the hive, meaning meaning face-to-face, next door, uh, shake hands, let's go to lunch, uh, things like that. I'm not saying I'm not saying you can't you can't uh, I just think it's difficult to do that. And so consequently, Louise, with your, your young people, the challenge I think they're going to have is they don't want to go to work. They don't want to go to the office. Right. But they want the culture. And I, I'm, I think our challenge is, is to show them that, that those things are mutually exclusive, staying at home, never, you know, never getting close to folks. Uh, and, and, but, but being able to benefit from the culture, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm concerned that, that that's not really uh, possible. I'm I'm well aligned with you, Jim. I think exactly that culture grows and manifests itself so much faster and meaningful once people can see each other, be in 
each other's presence, have those water cooler talks, go socialize before work, during work and after work that are essential. I do feel it's a combination of both. And flexibility is a word that comes up when I often talking to younger generations is it's not being told, go do this, go do this, come into the office five days, stay home. I find that if you give employees flexibility with some insight in regards to if you come in, this this is what you will benefit from our culture, then you will have those employees drawn into your culture that want to participate. I do find that the the shift in many of the big tech companies that went 100% remote and came out, Silicon Valley came out a few years ago and says we're completely remote. Now they've reversed that and having people come in the office because they value the connection, the belonging, the opportunity to grow and foster and the ease of getting shit done when you're in the office together. Well, and you know, the, the thing is, is that I... And and I didn't want to I didn't want to make it sound like I said that they they should be in the office five days a week if, if you can get that that's great but uh, but at, at at least some part of the time and and they need the, they need to be there at the same time right yeah. yes you, you yeah. can't build those bonds if you're not there at the same time the thing that made those CEOs able to tell me how productive people were was people had the culture when they were in the hive when we sent them home they took the culture with them. And it lasted as long as those people were still there. But as they left and the new people came on, not having been to the hive, that's where the problem. And, and of course, we're seeing the reporting. We're seeing the uh, the research coming out now that 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 those chickens have come home to roost, so to speak. You're exactly right, Jim. Um, and, and I'd like to use this as an example. So one of the clients that I was working with, they had this exact situation where they felt the culture and the onboarding and the connection that new employees had to the older employee to the employees that were there long term, it was broken. So what they we I worked with them and we worked with them at People and Culture Matters to come up with a new approach as it relates to onboarding and expectations around being in the office. So what we implemented was the first six months, any new hire, any role and needs to spend more days than not in the office. So expectation is around three to four days. And that really is very purposeful for being in the office. So it's either to socialize with others, meet with your manager, get exposure to the management team, go out for lunch with colleagues, whatever it may be. But it was really an opportunity for the management to assess fit and culture of the individual, but that individual to make sure they were maximizing their interactions. And what we found so far, we've, we launched this a few months ago, but what we found so far is everybody is now starting to come in three, four days a week because they find the value in those interactions and the speed that works get done, it gets done, the problem solving and the, the unintentional opportunities that happen that aren't as prescribed as it is if you were on a Zoom call. As I listen to the two of you go back and forth, there's a bigger problem here. Um, sometimes you need to be in person. With younger, you need to be in person. But three years ago, productivity was brilliant coming out of this. Culture was fine coming out of it. It's the same with retail. I mean, and we repeat it over and over again. Retail had nothing to do with bricks and mortar. It has to do with selling books or things to a final user. And people came out and said, we don't need stores anymore. We're going to do everything online. And retailers were launching everything online. And now they're not. 
because somebody shook them and said, you know what? People do like interaction. People do like to be together. Um, but we ignored it then. We ignored it now. And I'm sure we're going to ignore it next Monday with whatever highlight or news headline comes out. And how do we get people to just shake their head and say, there's no, there, there's a lot of gray in life and we better start figuring it out. The thing that we've got right now, Ken, and 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 this is that's such an important point. One of the things that I remind people, and you've heard me say this before, Ken, humanity took 10,000 years to go from mammoth to mainframe. Hmm. We've gone from mainframe to mobile in my lifetime, less than my lifetime. That is a acceleration of change that no other generation of living humans have ever our species our dna uh we've never had to deal with that and consequently we're having problems you see this uh, all the all the anxiety in in the tech world that's all because we haven't figured out how to go from analog ethics to digital ethics 100 percent of that is there is in there. I'm not saying somebody's doing something unethical. I'm talking mm -hmm. about the whole range of, of, of everything. But so the same thing with culture, you know, we, we, we're, we're now, we always just culture was there, but now that we're moving faster and we're, we're working remotely and, and, you know, all of this, we're asking humans to do something that we never had to do before. And we have to all stop, whether it's ethics or culture or whatever, we all have to stop and say, wait a minute, I am the same DNA as, as Hammurabi, as Abraham Lincoln. My grandchildren, my great-grandchildren are going to be the same DNA as me. But they'll be in a quantum world, right? But but humans haven't changed, we're not going to change until some kid's born with a with a with a with a usb in his ear <laughs> we're not going to change we're never going to be digital that's the challenge that that i think when you, you you're to get to your question i'm glad i didn't ask it that way by the way uh but 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 if we if we can't recognize before we take on anything new that's faster and better and cooler let's slow down a second and say okay we're still humans consuming this leveraging this if we don't do this the right way we got trouble. Louise, does that hold in large companies? I mean, can we can we teach people that gray is a color? <laughs> it's not black and white. You know, I, I think this just aligns to what how you survive in business on the go forward, staying in gray. I think gray allows the opportunity for out-of-the-box thinking. So solutions, connections. I, I find when you're explaining the real estate example uh, of uh, shopping experience in retail, to me, what came full circle is the need for experiences and the need to connect. And you're exactly right. It's you see these shopping malls now that finally understand that people are going to come for an experience. Now, relating that into the workplace, I think that workplaces create experience for people. They create opportunities for people. And most definitely being in the gray, figuring it out as we go along, be vulnerable to say we don't have all the answers right now is the way that we can maximize opportunities and change 
um, to create something that's bigger and better. For, for, for decades, I worked with people in my practice, in my consulting work and, and on my radio show about being aware of and leveraging culture. Long before, long before the pandemic happened, we were focusing on culture. A lot of, a lot of culture experts that I talked to. And, and, but now we have to, it's it, back then you could sort of get by if you didn't focus on it. If you were a good person, you did, you operated for the right reasons. You were a good, you know, you were ethical, your employee. And by the way, culture starts at the top and comes down. Values start at the top and come down. And, and so, uh, if, if the top people at the top had the right values, you could, you could get away with it. But now based on what Louise is talking about, if you, if your people are only there for three days, if you're not not only conscious of, of what kind of culture you want to have and how you want to leverage it, if you're not conscious of that, you're not, you can't just be conscious of it. You have to be leveraging it. You have to be building it, building it into to the practices, the training and and, and everything. And, and without being without it being intrusive on the productivity uh, it still has to be, you have to be more aware, more conscious of it and, uh, uh, and animate it more than, than we would have, say, 20 years ago. We're focused on culture. We're focused on engaging and enabling. And still we run into this thing called the great resignation. One, it's not that great. It's hurt a lot of corporations. And two, I think it's going to hurt a lot of people who, as we go into these rocky times, who actually jump ship. But how, how does that happen if we're so focused on culture? So my view of the Great Resignation was we kind of forgot to think about baby boomers leaving the business world. So I don't think it should have been a surprise, although I think it did catch a lot of people by surprise. Um, I, I think that we should have probably stopped and paused and said, what other ways can we engage our older populations leaving the organization to be more creative, to ensure that knowledge transfer is happening throughout the organization, to make sure that those key rocks within the organization, those key pillars of people and thoughts and values remain within the organization as, as the structure of the organization. Um, so as a, I, you know, very interesting concept as it relates to the great resignation is I was chatting with one of my clients who were looking at a performance culture and dealing with the great resignation, dealing with turnover, dealing with work-life balance. One of the key things that we've been working with them on is stop thinking that an employee is going to be there for the long term. Stop, stop designing programs that employees are going to be there for 10, 15 years. Let's incentivize those employees that have the two-year, three-year turnaround within organizations. And where we see this shift is we went from an annual performance review, once a year employees giving feedback, to now employees are wanting quarterly feedback, quarterly development plans. What's in it for me? And this whole shift is, you know, what can I do faster, better, quicker to maximize the organization. 
So I'm not sure that really answered your question um, there, Ken, but I think the great, the impact of the great resignation is well, one, we need to speed up on our progr- programs. I think we need to tap into our older generation and people that are leaving. Uh, one organization that I know actually calls it the, um, the varsity club, where it's people have left the organization. And can we tap into that talent of people that have left either as a contractor or part-time business, like really thinking of the way we do work differently um, is, is, is an advantage for, for those people to tap into those talents. I wrote an article in, in, in May of 2020, a couple of months after we went home. Uh, and I, 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 I prognosticated that there was going to be a lot of baby boomer business owners who were going to be getting out. And the, and the, and, and my perspective was January of 2020, all the way through 2019, there were plenty of seven, late 60, early 70 baby boomers who were saying, man, this is fun. I was thinking about retiring, but I could do this for two or three more years. And then the pandemic happened. And then people started seeing what that was going to entail. And a lot of baby boomer business owners were saying, I don't want to have to retool and 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 slay the slay the ne- another dragon to get back where I was. And so I, and then as you, as you say, not only in the ownership, but in the, but it it manifested in the employee levels, right, Louise? Because, Mm -hmm. because people were saying, you know, I like being face to face. I don't like being remote and some of the older folks. And so it was hard. It was hard on this, but here's, here's the disconnect. That's unfortunate. People who look like me, now I'm I'm a high adopter. I'm a high technology adopter. I couldn't have done what I did if I hadn't if I hadn't been. But a lot of my generation are not necessarily that way. But that doesn't mean they they don't have wisdom, stories, uh, uh, pathways, solutions that don't look like a text mm-hmm. or a video, a YouTube video. But there's, it's no less valuable. And the challenge I think we have, because I've done this with my own employees, my own millennial employees, is getting them to sit down, sit still, and let the folks tell their stories. Mm-hmm. We, are a, we are a species of, of stories. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we wouldn't be sitting here. Long before there was a written word, long before there was technology, we were telling stories, and that's how we got where we are today. And and so uh, I can remember trying to tell my t- millennial employees right out of college a story, and it wasn't it wasn't how I walked to school to to in two feet of snow uphill both ways. It was something that was germane to the digital things we were doing. They didn't like it. They didn't want to sit there and listen to me. And I'm writing their check. I'm I'm writing their paycheck, right? That's something if I could do, and I know this this sounds like an, another OK Boomer moment, but but I really do believe that that's something. And and one of you mentioned mentoring earlier. Um, you know, uh, I, I believe mentoring is something that's not been not come easy for the younger generations. Mm-hmm. That that they look at they look at somebody who looks like me and they say, what does he have to offer? And I think they might be surprised. There's a lot of there's a lot of Yodas out there who, who you know Yoda doesn't look like a spring chicken either, did he? 
there's a lot of Yodas out there that, that, that they can learn from. And I, and I want one last thing. There are two or three that I've met in my, of those people I was telling you, but there were two or three that have, that listened and they have told me, they've come back and told me how much those stories help them get ahead. Well, Jim, as you say that, it's it's funny. Um, one of the key things that we do and we're doing right now, we always seem to be, is is teaching the importance of storytelling. And mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I think that some people have called it one of the number one skills of, of successful senior leaders. Because if you can't connect to people with a, a pragmatic, pragmatic, pointed, uh, engaging story. That, that well, that's obviously relatable. You aren't going to get your message across. You aren't going to get them to see it in your shoe, in their shoes. The young folks, Louis, should realize what's happening when a person who looks like me tells them a story. They're taking their valuable time and they're sharing what they know for no particular benefit for themselves. That is a gift. That is an absolute gift that I that I if if I could say something to these people, young people, I would say that person has given you a gift that you may be able to use the rest of your life. I I don't go at every day. I I quote in my head or out loud things that mentors told me, and they didn't know they were being my mentor. Most of my mentors didn't know they were mentoring me, but I listened and I still use, I still quote them from 50 years ago. Louise, picking up on that, does that happen with, with some of your mid to large size organizational background? And I mean, as entrepreneurs, yes, I, I think we're more prone to storytelling. I think we're more prone to immediate feedback, if you will. I think I once said to Sonia, sure, we'll do a, a one-year review, but if, if you're here in a year, it's because you're doing great things. Entrepreneurs don't wait a year to tell you you're wasting my time and money. So how do you do that in a larger corporation, Louise? The quick answer is more face-to-face time, right? I think that if, if storytelling happens intentionally and unintentionally, and I think when you're in the office and you have a culture that allows people to have downtime, it's not all billable hours. It's getting to know each other, um, allowing there's a high trust factor, allowing others to share, um, allow others to be vulnerable, to share their authentic self at the workplace. We're hearing that come up all the time. I do think that that's kind of the the, the essence of being allowed to share stories is is showing you're vulnerable and showing, hey, this this person that you're mentoring, I didn't have it all either. I didn't know X and Y, but this is how I went and learned it and sharing those tidbits of information. I think you can build that into your culture. And I think actually, you know, if you look at it, it as uh, storytelling is mentorship strongly believe that mentorship is something that needs to happen within organizations. And now there's a digital solutions to ensure that mentorship is happening, um, that, that many of the bigger organizations are implementing. Um, and I think it's beautiful because I, I think the older generations want to share their opportunities and struggles and lessons. 
and the younger people, I do think do want to hear and listen and adjust and take those thoughts and maybe perhaps apply them in different ways or different opportunities. But I think your culture starts with open honesty, vulnerability, building in time to just be with other people to build those relationships. I think that's part of what is so essential when it comes to storytelling, when it comes to passing on lessons learned and those type of things. About 20 to 25% of them are very much likely to, to listen. And to the degree, Louise, that you could leverage, you could identify those people, that, that cohort, so to speak, and leverage them uh, in in a group, and and that that you know they might be they might be sort of the pathfinders, the the uh, scouts for the other for the rest of the folks to to bring them along. Uh, there are there are people there are like that. You know, one of the things I I'll never forget, Ken, when I was with you guys in Columbus at your Columbus event, those young people in the audience after I gave my presentation, they swarmed me. Hmm with questions. I I was, I felt like the human race is going to be fine now. Because, <laughs> because yeah. here were, here were people, I have socks older than these kids, and, and uh, that I still wear. And, and yet they were asking me, you know, tell me more about this or that. And I thought, wow, this is, this is good. And so, uh, as I think I told you once before in, in our previous uh, interview, Ken, I'm, I'm betting on humanity. And, and Jim, just to echo on that beautiful interest that younger generations have to learn and to listen, uh, in, in one of our um, larger organizations, we implemented a mentorship program um, and used a software to do that. And the most popular, you have to sign up to, to attend these mentorship sessions. And the most popular sessions that we have employees sign up for is called Ask Me Anything where leadership go on either in person or on a Zoom call where they share a little bit about themselves, but the majority of the hour is having people in the audience ask them anything and to share the vulnerability, share their story and the the connection that that allows people to have within the organization is beautiful. The thing to that I think to tell these young people is what you're doing is no different, zero difference from what your parents, your grandparents did. You're just doing it with different tools and faster. Otherwise, the work, the goal, the result is still a very primordial human thing. I, it, it strikes me, though, that what you're talking about, the storytelling or even basic communication, these are not skills we're necessarily taught in school. These are not things that we're, you know, given the, the how-tos or the practice. <laughs> yes, yes, because we have smart things and we're, we're tweeting, I get it. Um, but to me, there's, uh, I would call it more constructive framing. I have this hesitancy to, to believe that if you ask somebody to come forward and say, I don't know how, that that's very hard for them to do. And frankly, if I had somebody coming to me twice a week saying, I don't know how, I'd be going, ooh, right hire, wrong hire. If somebody comes to me and says, 
Here's where my thinking is. I'd like to double tap on that with you, or I'd like to pick up the conversation, meaning they've started it and they've done what they believe they can do, but they have some poignant insights that they're looking for from me. That is a much different conversation that it's okay to fail. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to be vulnerable. So is there a way to frame it that way? Here's a framing thing that I, that I have found more and more powerful as I've gotten older. Four words, very powerful for framing and and in in, in a, a way to get something out of someone without minimizing yourself or or if your ego won't allow you to do that as easily as it will for some other people is to say i need your advice no one will turn you down everyone loves to give advice completely agree jim i think you're you're um right right on they're asking for advice and and Ken, when you're explaining the your two situations where someone's like, I need help versus can we just sit down and go through this together? The big piece that's different for me is the accountability. This person's washing their hands saying, you come up with the solution. You need help. I need you need to give me the answers versus the latter where it's like, let's work on this together. Help steer me with advice. And here are my suggestions on what is involved in it. I, I did have a, when I was in corporate um, world, I strongly encouraged anybody that came to me to have a conversation to at least have two solutions. They could be great, not fully baked, whatever it is, but don't just come and dump problems. It's about working together on the solutions, but holding those uh, employees accountable to come up with solutions. And then we can build on those solutions. I think that's really meaningful. And just to your comment around soft skills and how are we teaching soft skills, I have seen an absolute shift from soft skills that were secondary to soft skills now are your power skills. It's your differentiator. It's the it's the skills that are that you can use and leverage to get hired, to get promoted, to be a s- excellent leader. Like empathy. Empathy was something that wasn't in a leader's toolbox, perhaps. But now it's one of the leading skills that's required for a leader. Absolutely. And so you've touched on something important here, skills for a leader. Um, Let's go to the balance scorecard for a second, because anyone in business, especially corporate, knows it's critical. A hundred years ago, I think the only scorecard was profit, Um, profit, profit, profit. Now we've got corporate social responsibility, ESG. I mean, there is... There are things that are happening now that because of the engagement of the consumer, um, because the people do care about the world and their surroundings. I'm not saying we didn't 100 years ago, but I'm not sure we understood, nor did we have the same profound challenges that we're facing today. Um, You can draw a line from some of those issues to the bottom line. Can, Can you do that with culture? Is there true value to it at the board level? There's, there's no there's no question about it. I mean, this and again, this is not old school or new school. This is the school. This is as fundamental as it gets. It's, it's, it's in families. It's in nonprofits. It's in government. It's in public, private companies, it, uh, in, military, in the military. I spent 15 years in the U.S. Army and and I could tell I could walk on a post and meet a, a private and tell what that person's commander was like culture in my opinion 
culture is if if you said okay what's more important to sustain long term your product or your culture i'd say culture no question because products come and go culture doesn't and so i I think it's i think it's got to be on top uh and and just like you know one of my one of my trust one of my trust mentors and my on my radio show uh dr arki chankute he he's he's he taught us that trust is not only the right thing to do it's a business best practice Hmm. culture is not just important it's an essential business element very very much so jim just to resonate um and and reiterate what you had mentioned i find if 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 you aren't it culture is your business that is the business that is your thing that differentiates you from the next widget maker down the street it is the opportunity that people get to live and breathe and enjoy your culture. And I always have a little tongue in cheek with the leaders that I work with in regards to culture. And one thing I say is culture is often determined by how your employees feel on Sunday night going into Monday. And if it is excitement, if it's a smile, if it's energy, if they're invigorated, you're doing something good. If it's dread, if it's pain, if it's suffering, then you need to spend some time and think about how we shift the boat. Um, in regards to culture impact on the bottom line, I think it is the bottom line. I think culture drives revenue, drives performance, individual, financial. And boards are demanding that you look at engagement, you look at social responsibility, you look at turnover rates. And now you're starting to see that many leading organizations are looking at retention, are looking at development opportunities, internal promotions, and and the bonuses of the management are based upon those elements. So it's baked right into management competency. So yes, absolutely, culture is the bottom line and impacts the bottom line. But but it's very important though that we define culture a little bit. We haven't really done that yet. And it's not about it's not about ESG. It's not about all the other three-letter acronyms or whatever. It's about how we treat each other and how what we how we feel about each other. And, and, and an example that you used a minute ago, Louise, I think putting something higher that above us, above me, something my, my commitment to you is more imp- important than inconveniencing me, my inconvenience. And, and pr- I promise, uh, uh, you can, and, and, and if you have that in a, in a, in a, if it's a positive force in a business, you can cut it with a knife. I mean, it, it, you can't open the front door without hitting it when you walk in. Uh, you said it a minute ago, the happy people are happy. And I got a real quick story to tell you. I know a publicly traded company that had the most had the most amazing culture. This is a publicly traded company. And it, it was it was one of the last true entrepreneurial publicly traded publicly traded companies I'd ever, I I know the uh, uh advocate uh, uh shareholders advocates tried to tried to tried to buy it, tried to get into the company and take them over. Right? I forgot the term that they use. Uh, and and try to change the company because they thought they could make more money. They should be making more money. They didn't like these these shareholder advocates didn't like how 
they were treating their own pe- the people. They thought that's that's baloney. That's not profitable. Well, within 18 months, those shareholder advocates left with their tail between their legs. They failed. They didn't realize that that culture was the best practice of the company. And they were doing, they were, they weren't, they were making this profit where they were very, very profitable, but they just thought, well, I, all this, all these nice things you're doing to your, your employees, we need to be putting that on the bottom line. And they didn't realize that, that, uh, that the culture was what was the, where the success was coming from. And they left, they, they failed. And, and this is a company that didn't, that usually didn't fail at that. Yeah, very much, very much echoing just again what you're saying about culture. It's the way people feel. It's the behaviors. It's the actions, top down, bottom up. And I find a real good test for culture. It's easy to see culture when things are good. It's even better to test culture when things aren't good, to see how people get behind their behaviors, their actions, their words. Do they come together, show belonging? show connectiveness or, or what matters when times are tough or is it toxic and toxic, oh, is toxic. easy to see yes and that, that's and that, again it can be a, a toxic culture it doesn't have to just culture doesn't mean as i said earlier to, culture doesn't mean uh everything's great it could be toxic I mean, and 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 almost always almost i've never seen another example where the toxicity came from the top well, Jim, Louise, uh, thank you both for your time. As, a, and as we come to an end to today's episode of Say Hi to the Future, um, there, boy, there's a, there's a lot of amazing points that were made. And Louise, for me, I think one of them that you just made really struck home with when you said people wake up on a Monday morning and they are excited to go to work. That seems like a great ending of a story about culture. So, so thank you for that. And I, I don't know if there are any last words that you you each have, but um, that for me was a, a wonderful home run moment. To me, I really like that concept because it is something that you can see, feel it's tangible, how well you're doing to connect with other people and drive that uh, culture within the organization. I just like to remind people that I never go anywhere without my phone, but <laughs> notice what's holding the phone. It's, it's protoplasm. It's human DNA. And, and that's where the culture is. It's not in there. It's not in the speed that we're traveling by, uh, how fast we can get there, how quickly we can get it done. It's in the humanity. Humanity is the key. And I, I think we just need to stay focused as we keep adding new tools and new leverage, let's stay focused on the humanity. Well, thank you for that again, Louise and Jim. And yes, humanity, high is human ingenuity. So we're all very much aligned. It all comes down to, to who we are, how we think and how we work together. So thank and, you again. And thank you. Time. And thank you, Ken, for, for highlighting this topic. Uh, I, I'm proud of you for, for what you're doing here. Thank you. If you enjoy this episode and you want to support our show, leave us a review and join our mailing list by visiting www.spider.works. That's S-P-Y-D-E-R.works and subscribe to our channel. Leave us a comment with who we should interview next. Thank you for listening and see you all next Friday.